Good morning. I am so grateful to be back with you today. Um, last week, I had a stomach bug, and with two hours notice, Corey Barnes preached a better sermon than I could preach with a week of preparation. And so, Corey, thank you very much, brother, for, for preaching. It's one of the, the real joys of, of having pastors in the body um, to be able to help shepherd and to care for the flock, but also to be able to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. That was one of those moments they prepare you for in seminary to always be ready. Um, and so thank you, Corey, for doing that and demonstrating your love for the word of God from John chapter two. And so this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter four, and we're going to continue on in our walk through the Gospel of Luke. And as a reminder, we're going to be looking at various passages in, in the Gospel of Luke. We're not going to be looking at every passage in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things I've become convinced of as a preacher of God's Word is that even if I were to take time to look at every single word through the entire Gospel of Luke, all 24 chapters, and we were to study every word and every sentence and look at it all together, and then I got to the very end of it, probably years from now, I would still say I've only scratched the surface. Uh, you never in one pass get it all. You, you never fully mine out the riches of God's Word. And so one of the things I hope that we continue to do is just to move through God's Word. And right now we're moving at a little quicker pace. We're looking at big picture and we're looking at different places in the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Luke right now, which is a, a, a one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels. Next, we're going to be looking at First and Second Samuel. And we're only going to take a few weeks, but we want to look at the history of God's Word. And then we're going to spend some time in the Psalms and the Proverbs over the summer. And that's going to be a good time in that literature. And so we're moving around in kind of big picture fashion, but that's part of the importance of Bible study of you being in a Bible study is because we really slow down in our Bible studies and go much deeper into specific passages and we slow down and look at sentences and those sort of things. So I want you to see the give take relationship between what takes place in this room together as we're in God's Word and then what takes place when we're in our Bible study groups. And so I encourage you um, to be involved in a Bible study group because you need both. Uh, we need the big picture of God's Word, but we also need to move in and look at the, at the smaller, finer aspects of God's Word and the doctrine and the theology that it communicates. Well, a few things that I'm excited about right now in the life of our church is um, our student ministry. I was talking with a mom just the other day, and so I'm not going to name the, the name of the student because I don't want to embarrass uh, him or her. But as we were talking, um, she was communicating that her child uh, is, is engaged in active conversation um, at their public high school, um, ministering to students, and is looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. And so this mom was encouraging her child, you know, like, well, man, that would be a great opportunity to use the three circles. And uh, the child said, you know, I'm working up to it, mom. I'm getting there. And I love that because that's exactly what all of us do. And so students, thank you. Thank you for gathering this weekend to do Disciple Now, to growing your faith. Thank you for being on mission um, in our city that you want to bring the gospel. But I want to encourage you, every adult in this room is just like you in that God, give me courage. God, give me boldness. Help me to be bold with the gospel. And so I want you to know how proud of you I am and how thankful I am for our student ministry and the disciple. Now, you'll be hearing more about that next weekend. And in the same breath, and I'm so thankful and I'm so grateful, this has been a hard week. If you live in New Orleans and if you had your eyes open at all this week, you know this was a hard week in our city. Miss Linda Freaky. And what happened to her with the carjacking and then her death? I mean, that, that just kind of rocked our entire city. 
there was a shooting. I know that we have a, a large number of folks that are affiliated with the New Orleans Seminary, and there was a death just right in front of the campus this week, a, a street justice killing of a father killing a, a man who had killed his son and his stepdaughter. And so you have these things going on, and then you, you just kind of crown it with a tornado that rips through Araby. And, and there's a death there. And so you look and you just, you know, you're like, man, like this has got my head spinning. You know, kind of reeling with the, the anguish of death and murder and senseless, you know, things with carjackings and, 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 and the, the, the manner of her death. It just, it, it rattled a lot of folks this week. And so what do we do? And what do we do in these sort of moments when there's real anguish, when there's real suffering, when there's real crime? When there's real brokenness in our city, as the people of God, we constantly come to this place of, do we believe? Do we believe this message of the gospel? Do we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world? And so therefore, a true hope for this moment in New Orleans. Do we believe that Jesus is not just something that results in church attendance, but results he himself changing the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl who trust him and give their lives fully to him? Do we believe that the church of Jesus Christ is really God's plan for world change? That God's plan for New Orleans is the health and strength and vitality and mission of his church? This week brings all of that back into question once again as we ponder anew the difficulties of living in this place. Well, in Jesus' day, there was great suffering. In Jesus' day, there was actual crime. In Jesus' day, people died senselessly. In Jesus' day, there were natural disasters, storms, earthquakes. In Jesus' day, we see a lot of the markings of our own day. And Jesus puts on display in John and Luke chapter 4 today what his mission was and how and how this world change was going to take place. He, he, he models it. He he even takes us through a couple of situations that show us, no, th that's good, that's important, but this is what I must be about. This is what I must do. And it is a needed reminder for us because in moments like this, we might be tempted to say, you know, we've got to give ourselves to this rather than to what Jesus said we must be about. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. And so if you need to sit because standing for a few minutes is going to be difficult, please keep your seat. But I ask for you to give your full attention to the Word of God, beginning in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And I'm going to read down through the end of this chapter. The Word of the Lord. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, speaking of Jesus. 
As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard took place in Capernaum. Do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, And yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the cliff of a hill on their town, on which their town was built, intending to hurl him off the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over over them all. And they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering with a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. And as he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them. It would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said to them, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Father, I pray this morning that through the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would align our lives again to the message of Christ, to the mission of Christ, to the must of Christ, and how it is that he oriented his life in accordance with your anointing and your sending, so that in our lives, now anointed by your Holy Spirit, and now sent in the power of your Holy Spirit, 
that we would be committed to the same. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see several things about Jesus. And can I just tell you what you and I need more than anything today is to see Jesus. If you're a guest here today, there is nothing more that I want for you than to see Jesus to see Jesus high and lifted up, to see how God in his grace sent his one and only son who lived with us. But I want for all of us here, if you've been a member at First Baptist all your life, I want you to see again the orientation of Jesus, how he was oriented to the mission. Now, we didn't get to look at last week at his baptism, in this moment where he's baptized by John the Baptist, who has a significant role as essentially the last and greatest Old Testament prophet who is preparing the people of God for the coming of the Messiah, that he's baptized and the heavens open and the spirit descends like a dove and God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with him, I'm well pleased. And so we see this this incredible demonstration that this is God's son, that that he has received the anointing of God's Holy Spirit, that then he's immediately led into the desert to be tempted by the evil one. And it's the nature of that temptation that I've contended before, as we've looked at that passage before from from Matthew's account, that I think the nature of his sonship was was on display. I think that it's probably during that time in the wilderness where God is making clear that he is headed ultimately to the cross. Now that's speculation, but what I derive that from is this orientation that Jesus already begins to demonstrate that he is focused this way. That there's so many good things he could do, the healing of the sick, the casting out of demons, but he is oriented to this proclamation mission. He is proclaiming a message. And so we'll be wise today to fix our eyes on Jesus and to consider fresh the nature of that message and the nature of his mission. But first of all, what we see in this passage in verse 16 is we see the man, Jesus. This is part of why it's so hard for this hometown to really believe him, to really receive his messages because he's from there. This is home. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. I mean, the humanity of Jesus is on display in this simple verse that he grew up in a hometown just like you grew up in a hometown. People knew him from childhood. In fact, they comment later on when they are, are kind of amazed at his words and they're, they're loving the gracious words coming out of his mouth, but they begin to think, isn't this Joseph's boy? And you see why Luke and why Matthew take great pain to make clear this isn't Joseph's boy. This is not just a son of man. This is the son of God. And that's important for us to remember in this moment that the the hometown, Nazareth, they're, they're wrestling with who this Jesus really is. But notice that it was his custom, as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. I love that, as usual. It was his custom to gather with the church. Now, I'm telling you right now, This is how you want to raise your kids. I mean, Jesus grew up in the the gathering of God's people. He heard the word of God. He grew up believing the scriptures from an early age. And we see then Paul, you hop over into the New Testament, and we see Paul commending Timothy as one who grew up in a household where he was brought to church. His mama and grandmother had him familiar with the scriptures from an early age, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. In other words, the Bible doesn't save you, but it speaks a saving message. 
about the God who can save you through faith in his son. And so it is good. So if you're a parent in this room, continue, persevere in the work of bringing your children to church. If you're watching from home, I want to thank you for for persevering with the church as we continue to go through COVID. And I'm thankful that in our state, the numbers are lower than they've ever been. And so we're thankful for that. And we want to continue to be mindful of that. But if you are a family at home, I want to invite you back. I want to invite you to come back and to be in person. The relationships that are nurtured, the discipleship that takes place, that can only be achieved when we gather together. And so I want to encourage you, not shame you, not say, hey, stop watching from home, but to just say, Please, please prioritize, just as it was in the life of Christ, to gather with the people of God. There is great nourishment for your soul that is found here with your brothers and sisters. We see the man, Jesus, in verse 16, but then we see the mission of Jesus immediately begin to blossom, coming from God's word in verses 17 through 21. And we see it coming right out of the word of God. It wasn't like Jesus was like, how can I make a difference in this world? It wasn't like Jesus was like, you know, what can I do great for God? And just came up with something that he could do. I know what I could do. I could die for people. There's a lot of people that have died for people. There's a lot of people that have died for causes. But this, this was God's plan. This is what God had ordained. And notice the exact nature of what God had ordained. Jesus stands up. He receives the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. We see the providence of God for exactly where they are. I want to encourage you just to plug along the way that as we're we're reading through God's word together, you might be tempted to say, man, I don't know how the Old Testament could speak into my life right now. Well, I want you to see with the evidence of Jesus himself, the providence of God's word for the specific situations that you're facing for this exact moment in your own life, that God is able to speak from all of his word to guide you by his spirit into a life of obedience, just as he does Jesus. So he gets the scroll from, from the attendant. He turns it to this place, and we see that he, he chooses to read this exact passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because two things, he has anointed me and he has sent me. Those are the two verbs that we see in this passage. And and these two verbs then lend themselves to action. The first verb, because he has anointed me, why? To preach good news to the poor. And then second, he has sent me. Why? To proclaim release to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But those are two ideas that the Spirit of the Lord is on me to anoint me and to send me are what we need to latch on to. Because Luke is volume one of two books written by Luke, the other being Acts. And what we see when we look big picture at the book of Luke The Gospel of Luke and at the book of Acts are a lot of parallels. We see right here at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus being anointed by the Spirit and being sent. You turn over to the book of Acts and what do you see? You see the church gathering together and then them being anointed by the Holy Spirit and then being sent into all nations. And so we need to see those parallel features. And that needs to come then fresh to us again today 
because we often overlook this idea that this first anointing, that this first action, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he, to, because he has anointed me, is something that we forget just how sacred and incredible that is. You see, we need to rewind a little bit back into the Old Testament and to remember the story of King David when he was but a boy and he was out in a field almost forgotten by his family when Samuel, the prophet of God, came calling and came and said to Jesse, the dad, that one of your sons is God's anointed chosen king. So they began to pile in the boys and starting with the oldest, the strongest, the, the greatest leader. No, not him. And then the next one, no, not him. And then the next one, no, not him. And then the next one, no, not him. And do you have any more kids? Jesse's almost like he's forgotten. Well, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, I guess there is one more. I guess there's, there's this one, he's out in the field. I guess we could call for him. Almost this sense of like Jesse being like, but I know it's not him. And then David comes in and the prophet says, this is God's anointed. And what does he do? He pours oil on his head. He anoints him. And what is that a demonstration of? This is God's chosen one. God has chosen this one. Obviously, there is a, a shared grace that the whole family is receiving as being part of, of, of God's community. But there is something set apart, something distinct, God's plan God's goodness resting on this one, David. And that meant something. And can I tell you, you have received, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, an anointing that won't wash off in a shower. You see, the oil went away, but the Spirit of God does not. That, is, that should just wash over us fresh again, that we have been anointed by God, chosen, precious to him, included in his plan of redemption, included in the lineage of David and other kings, included in the goodness and the plan of God revealed fully in Jesus Christ. Now you and I have been anointed, but for what? To preach good news to the poor. To preach good news to the poor. That's why we've been anointed. That's why Jesus was anointed, and that's why you and I have been anointed to preach good news to the poor. You say to the materially poor? Absolutely. To those who are in relational poverty? Absolutely. To those who, who are poor of, of, of resources, poor of health, poor of education? I mean, all of the above. Yes, yes, yes. To bring this good news to those who are poor. And I'm gonna circle back to that at the end of this sermon to say that that's the best understanding of self that you could ever have is that you are poor. Is that you are poor. You say, but Chad, I'm not. You are poor. And it is only the poor who will be satisfied with Christ. It is only those who say to him, I am poor and needy who experience the gift of his presence and the gift of his grace. But when you say, I, I, I'm not poor and needy, then Jesus will always mean very little to you. The spirit of the Lord is on me because, first verb, he has anointed me. Second verb, he has sent me. 
I want you to see the mission. It is to demonstrate anointing through preaching. It is to demonstrate anointing the Spirit is on me by being sent. Sent to who? To proclaim release to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is sent. And I want you to see as we go through the pages of Luke how he is sent to the most unlikely places. For some of you, New Orleans is the most unlikely place you thought you'd ever be. Can I get an amen? I grew up in Baton Rouge. My friends came to New Orleans to do things they regretted. And so I said, man, you could keep New Orleans. I didn't even like coming here for a Saints game. I was like, man, get me in and out. And that first year, back in 2004, when we moved to New Orleans, it was, our plan was three and out. It's going to take me three years to get my degree, and then I want to be out of here. But in that first year, God began to change everything. You want to know where he did it? In the French Quarter. You want to know when he did it? 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. You want to know how he did it? By preaching good news. Preaching good news to the poor. Spending time worshiping the Lord in Jackson Square with 70 homeless men and women bringing breakfast, and anybody that wanted to come back to church, load them up. Let's go. That's where God changed me and began to show me the riches of his grace in New Orleans and changed our prayer. God, would you keep us here for a lifetime? And little did I know, little did I know that in his grace, he would answer in ways that only he gets the glory, that prayer. He would keep us here for a lifetime to continue to be part of what he is doing in the most unlikely places. And many would say, this is the most unlikely city. And this week you've been saying, I think it's the most unlikely city. I'm getting ready for his grace. I'm excited about what he is about to do. Don't grow weary in doing good for at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. The harvest is coming. And God is sending more laborers into his harvest field. We see the man, Jesus. We see the mission of Jesus. We see the mystery of Jesus begin to be revealed. You see, back in verse 21, he said to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And we see that just through the proclamation of the word, the ministry that God has called him to is being fulfilled. That's a key indicator for us of what mission is to be. It is a proclamation mission. Notice that the nature of what Jesus is going to do is to be proclaiming. He's going to be preaching good news. He's going to be proclaiming liberation to those who are in captivity. It's going to be an articulated message mission. And a lot of people today say, you know what? you You can say the gospel. I'm going to show the gospel. Nobody ever got saved by a free meal. They got fed, but they didn't get saved. And so what I am not advocating for is we ditch the free meal, but that we do bold compassion. We meet the urgent needs in our city. We address the real issues going on in our city in a real and meaningful way. We follow the example of ministries like Crossroads NOLA 
who have realized that, that TBRI is a tool, an effective tool, not only in foster care ministry, but even beyond to prevent maybe children going into foster care, to be able to equip educators and, and equip social workers and, and people in law with skills and training that will hopefully change a whole system to help prevent children from just being in foster care. That's a meaningful thing. But I love what Anna Palmer says. She says, I believe in TBRI and I believe in Jesus Christ. You see, she is realizing she can go out with bold compassion with this tool called trauma-based relational intervention. But she is not neglecting the name of Jesus. Their ministry is not a Christless ministry. It's a both and, and we need that sort of creativity, that sort of high level engagement in our city to the real issues going on. Never forsaking Christ, but never forsaking the needs of those around us. That's what we are called to in this proclamation ministry. And we're gonna see that revealed in the rest of this passage. But that's where then it sets us squarely with the mystery of Christ. Because chances are we are like they were then of gonna be scratching our head as this thing unfolds. You see, Jesus, right now in this moment, people are hanging on every gracious word that he's saying. He's got an audience. You know, a lot of times that's what you think, you know, we need to get more and more people in here. We need to grow our numbers and, and all of these sort of things. And it's at these critical moments when it seems like there's a lot of people following him that all of a sudden Jesus kind of throws this curveball and people all of a sudden by the end of this moment, they're ready to kill him. Like they literally pull him out to the cliff and are ready to throw him off the cliff. Well, a lot changed from, man, we love this guy, to minutes later, let's kill him. Well, what happened? Was it something I said? Indeed it was. Because Jesus, being a careful student of the scriptures, he simply says to them, he makes very clear from two passages, from two prophets, because he knows that they're questioning the nature of his ministry. It's this Joseph's son. That, that statement is loaded. That, that shows a lot of what they're suspecting here. And we learn in other places that he's not able to do any miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief. And so we see that there's some problems back in Nazareth. But in two passages, he incites a, a, a revolt. And what are they? Two prophets, Elisha, Elijah and Elisha. In Elijah's day, he was called to prophesy to the people of God because of their sin. And then he went away while a, a drought came over the land. And this drought goes on for, as it says here, three and a half years. And it goes on and it goes on. And, and you would think that it was during this time that God is just miraculously providing for Elijah just in this incredible way. Like, you know, he has a, a bubbling stream right there, but that's not how it works out. The stream dries up, the birds stop bringing the food. And then God sends Elijah to this widow in Sidon, the widow of Zarephath. And it's an incredible story of God's provision. I mean, she herself is in need of food. She's about to make her last meal for her child who's then gonna die and then she's gonna die. So this is a widow about to be feeding a last meal to an orphan. And then that was gonna be it. And he sends him over there. Well, now what's the problem there? I mean, like, goodness, God's provided for a, an orphan and a widow. I mean, so this is all good news, right? Wasn't the right widow, wasn't the right orphan. They weren't Israelites, they were Gentiles. 
They were outside of the community of God. And God is, is sending his prophet there and providing in a miraculous way for her there while there were many widows still in Israel. Second example, Elisha. Elisha goes forward and it says that he, there were many in his day who had leprosy, but he cleansed only one, Naaman, the Syrian. And what we know a little bit of the history is that Naaman very likely had done a raid on the people of God and actually kidnapped some people. In fact, kidnapped maybe a servant girl, a child of Israel, who was then in his household and then spoke a message of hope to him that there, were, there, were, there was a prophet in Israel who maybe could heal him of his skin disease. And so he goes there. And he goes and, and then washes in the river exactly as God had communicated or through, through his prophet, and he's cleansed. And Jesus' message is, weren't there many lepers in Israel in Elisha's day? You say, well, what's wrong there? Not the right person. Not the right person. You see, this is the hard part, right? Is that in this week, we are called to bring the gospel to Linda Freaky's family who are suffering because of the loss of a beloved grandmother and mother and member of the community. And this is the part that starts to rub us wrong. We're called to bring the gospel to the 17-year-old who dragged her to death. That's why they took him to the cliff. That's why they were like, mm-mm. Can't show compassion to the dad who pulled the trigger at the corner of Old Gentilian and Chef. We'll just call for, for, for more policing. But Jesus says, no, go, go to him. Bring the gospel to him. He's in need of me. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why this message is so mysterious is that Jesus is saying, I want to bring the gospel to the whole world, including the people that you right now are saying, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. scratch him off the list. Too far gone. Doesn't deserve compassion, doesn't deserve love. That's exactly what the people of God were saying of every Gentile. They don't deserve. You know what? They don't. And neither did you and neither do I. We don't deserve. That's why it's grace. And his grace is for all. This message is confronting us. It confronted them in Jesus's day. It confronts us today in New Orleans on a really hard week. We see the man Jesus. We see the mission of Jesus. We see the mystery of Jesus. And time is flying by. We see the message of Jesus. I want you just to see real quickly as we turn the corner into verses 31 and then going out to the end of the chapter. We see him go and he, he speaks this message. But notice what they say. He's, he's driving out demons. He's, he's communicating this. And notice what they, they are astonished by in verse 32. They were astonished at this teaching because his message had authority. And then verse 36, amazement came over them all and they were saying to one another, what is this message? What is this message? Notice they don't say, what is this, you know, touch? What is this power? They say, what is this message? 
And brothers and sisters, it is the message of Jesus's authority over sin and death that we proclaim in the gospel. When we go into New Orleans and we go into prisons and we go into difficult places in our city, we bring a message that changes the core of every man, woman, boy, and girl who experiences his grace. It truly changes them. It takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. This gospel has authority. This gospel causes people to be amazed that through a spoken message, a life was changed. That's the power of the gospel. That's what the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary is they have been doing theological education in Angola State Penitentiary for years now. They have witnessed how God changes men, changes them at their core such that then his anointing is on them and they desire to be sent to other prisons because they know that they're not going to be getting out, but they want to redeem the rest of their time in order to go to other prisons to bring this gospel message. I mean, that's the power of the gospel. I want you to see that message of authority. But then we conclude in this passage by seeing the must of Jesus. Because I think this is the hardest part. Is It says in verse 37, and news about him began to go out in every place in the vicinity. So I mean, like people are really starting to follow. And then he goes and then he begins his healing ministry. This is the first examples in the gospel of Luke where we see him beginning to cast out you know, demons by large numbers that everybody's touching is being healed. He rebukes the fever of, of Peter's mother-in-law and she gets up and begins to serve him. We see all of this happening. And you would think Jesus would say, I think I've, I've turned the corner. I think I know how I'm gonna get the, the most following. How I'm gonna do the most good is gonna be through, through health ministry. And, and there is an incredible place today for healthcare ministry both in New Orleans and around the world. I'm so thankful for Baptist Community Health Services right here in New Orleans, begun by the New Orleans Baptist Association that is now a federally qualified health clinic. I mean, it's an incredible status. It's an incredible clinic. I encourage you, if you've never visited it, to do it, to pray for it, to support it. But I want you to see that Jesus, in that moment of doing healthcare ministry, of healing people, he then goes out to a deserted place and he knows, and he knows that he has the authority to do this. He's doing it. There's nothing wrong with what he's doing because he'll continue to do it. He does it continually. And then we see it in the early church being done, but notice the must, the must, I must of Jesus. He says in verse 43, but he said to them, it is necessary, I must, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. I must preach. I must proclaim. And brothers and sisters, beyond everything else that we drive anchor to in this life, we have been anointed, we have been sent to proclaim a message. We have been sent to proclaim a message, to preach good news. You say, but Chad, isn't that the job of the preacher? Aren't you called to preach the gospel, to preach good news? Yes, I'm called to pastor and to, and to teach, absolutely. 
But the beauty of the body of Christ that unfolds in the pages of Acts, remember volume two of what Luke wrote, is in this, men and women just like you, students just like you, boys and girls just like you, who began to spread with that gospel message and it going into all the earth, spreading and spreading and spreading so much so that today in New Orleans, there's a church. There are many churches in New Orleans. There are many believers gathered in this city this morning worshiping the Lord. How did that happen? It happened through men, women, boys, and girls just like you going out and bringing this good news to the ends of the earth. So what will we do? What do we do in light of a passage like this? Well, first of all, we come back to the message that Jesus proclaims right here. Reminding ourselves that the Spirit of the Lord is on us for two purposes. To anoint us. Be reminded of that. God has poured his Holy Spirit on you. He has anointed you for good works. To walk in the power of his Spirit in this city in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace. He has anointed you to preach good news to the poor. And second, he has sent you. I mean, think about the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you for surely I am with you always until the end of the age. We see that we are sent. We are sent. We are anointed. And so I encourage you to drive that anchor again. I must go. I must go. It's not optional anymore. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I must go because I am anointed and I am sent. That's why his spirit rests upon you. Drive that down. Now, what that will look like, it might look like healthcare ministry. It may look like sharing the gospel with a friend in a public high school this week. It may look like a true ministerial conversation where you minister to a coworker in their grief and in their pain this week. I don't know what it'll look like. But I know that everything changes when you drive the anchor and you say, I must go. As long as you think I might go, you won't. But when you see I must go, that's when I begin to see doors open that only God gets the glory for. But second, we need to return to that posture for which Jesus came. Because before we were anointed and before we were sent, you and I were poor and in need. And the reality is, is even though I've received every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ now, I'm seated with him in the heavenly places. I mean, Ephesians chapter 1 just, just loaded with the beauty of what we are now. I never graduate from what David said. I am poor and needy. I encourage you, make that the bedrock of your identity before the Lord. That on a daily basis, when you come before him, you begin with, God, I am poor and needy. Because it's in that position that then you will celebrate the, the release from your captivity. You will celebrate that he has given you sight. He's given salve for your eyes that you could see. You will celebrate that you are free, free indeed. You will celebrate the Lord's favor that rests not on you for a year 
before in eternity. But today you may be here, and in this moment of response, this may be the very first time that you have come to the place of realizing you are poor and needy. And what you need more than anything else is this Jesus who came and was on a message proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. You see, that good news took full circle when Jesus died on the cross paying the price for your sin and mine. He was then buried in a tomb, and on the third day, God raised him from the grave to show that he had defeated sin and death. And I encourage you today that if you will turn from your brokenness and sin, just being honest with God, God, I am poor and needy, and in turning to Jesus and trusting and following him, you will become a new creation. The old will be gone, the new will come, you will receive the anointing of his spirit in order to proclaim the good news and to be sent. And so I want to invite everyone to stand in this moment for a time of response as I pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word today from the Gospel of Luke. I thank you for how it shows us Jesus and how today, if there was anyone in this room who for the first time realized they are poor and needy, that you stand ready to receive them by your grace into your kingdom forever. If that's you today, I invite you just to come forward as we sing a couple of verses of this song that I might be able to pray with you this morning.